Amen. Let's be seated. Did you catch those words? But we never can prove the delights of His love until all in the altar we lay. It's not talking about salvation. That's by grace through faith alone. But it's talking about our fellowship with God. You know, there's no such thing as saying, Lord, I want to be near you, but I'm not going to do what you say. A soul that wants to be near to God has resigned he's going to do what God says. And that's the attitude we ought to have coming to the Bible. Not, Lord, what is your will so I can think about it? Lord, what is your will because I'm going to do it? All right, back to Leviticus 16. I know we didn't expect to be here, but this really is a good way to prepare our hearts for next week uh, to take communion together. Now, uh, you've, I'm sure, heard it, if you are a believer and you have been for some time. You should read through your Bible once a year, twice a year, four times a year. One guy I know of, it's uh, I think 17 times a year. And sometimes those can become man-made laws. I'm not here to tell you how many times you should, but I, I do want to say this. I hope that some sort of systematic reading of the Scriptures is part. We need to study, but we also need to just read through it. Let me make another guess based on experience. A lot of you have probably read through the Bible, starting in Genesis, and you don't exactly get warm fuzzies when you get to the book of Leviticus. Right? One of the things I find fascinating about the California gold rush, in fact, we were watching as a family a documentary fairly recently, and uh, the, the first people to actually show up with little more than a basic shovel in their hands, they were literally turning over surface soil, and collecting the gold nuggets for a while. Well, you know how humanity can't keep its mouth shut. Uh, pretty soon they publish all over the world and probably the moon. Come to California and pick up the gold nuggets. And in a very short time, nobody was picking up nuggets off of the surface. The gold wasn't gone. Now they just had to go into the hard rock to get it out. You know, in a sense, the Scriptures can be like that. Uh, you can open up to John 3.16. Isn't that a great verse? That's kind of like a nugget laying on the surface. But when you get to Leviticus, it's a little bit of hard rock mining. But I assure you, there's much gold to be found there. Tremendous pictures of our Lord Jesus there. If you're familiar with the Jewish calendar, remember their ceremony, they have a civil and a ceremonial calendar, and so it differs from ours. But the fourth month became the first month, and then the seventh month of the year, on the tenth day of that month, is Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, which amounts to the most solemn day that exists on the Jewish calendar. In fact, it was uh, just over two weeks ago, in early October this year. 
And today what that day marks, now there are many, many secular Jews that could frankly care less about their history and about God in general. Uh, But among those Jews that have some semblance of religion, especially those that are still clinging tight to Judaism as a way of salvation, which cannot save them. It's a day of varying levels of frustration no matter what other systems have arisen, because of this cardinal reason, the sincere Jew has no place to offer a sacrifice, at least that's what he thinks. In fact, if God opens the door to preach the gospel to a lost Jew, uh, that's one of the most powerful questions that can be asked. Remember, a Jew who's trying to attain God's Favor. He's trying to earn God's righteousness. He's trying to keep the law of Moses. And you can ask him, where do you offer sacrifice? Why did God allow that temple to be destroyed? Of course, Christians understand because the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ has come. So Jews today will pray, read the Torah, wait for the temple to be rebuilt, but it pains them. They have no altar. There's no altar in Jerusalem. They can't go to Temple Mount. They can't keep the Day of Atonement. It's 1,949 years ago that the last of the Jewish temples in Jerusalem was leveled to the ground by the Roman armies under under the general Titus, who later became emperor. And let me just review as a side note, in Jewish biblical history and future prophecy, there are four uh, Jewish temples. There's Solomon's temple, which was destroyed by the Babylonians around 586 B.C. Uh, Then there was the returning remnant under Zerubbabel, and uh, Haggai comes and lights a fire under them. They complete that temple. There was great rejoicing, but some of the older ones actually wept because It was so much smaller than Solomon's by comparison, and they remembered what that building had been like. What about Herod's temple in the New Testament? Herod's temple wasn't a new temple. It was an expansion. It was an expansion project on the old temple, and it was a glorious one. So Herod's temple wasn't a third temple. It was still uh, the second temple. Uh, In the future, there will be the the next Jewish temple, which houses the Antichrist. And then the fourth Jewish temple is the last nine chapters of Ezekiel, which is the millennial temple. Those will reserve for another time. But when Christ walked the earth, Herod's temple was not just, it wasn't built, it was under construction. Remember the Lord had said, uh, they said, hey, look at this building. And he said, Destroy this temple in three days. I'll raise it again. Now, they twisted his words. By the way, he could have done that. He was talking about his body. But their response, remember what they said? Forty and six years was this in building, and you're going to raise it up in three days? Yes, that temple had been under construction for 46 years when Christ had that conversation. After the death of Herod the Great, throughout the entire reign at this point of Herod Antipas, 
And if you can picture, every time the Lord visited the temple, there would have been men working. In fact, Herod the Great had trained 1,000 priests as carpenters and masons so that no defiled hands would touch God's holy building. Herod had to pacify them somehow. Remember, he was an Idumean or an Edomite. He wasn't even a full-blooded Jew. Now, construction of that went on until 34 years after the crucifixion. It was over 80 years that temple of Herod was being built. And only eight years after its completion, it was completely wiped out. They put all their stock in a building, articles of that building. That's our salvation. The Lord had prophesied not one stone will be left upon another. It's interesting in history. Titus apparently wanted to save the building. No one really knows how it caught on fire, but when it did, the gold melted and ran between the blocks, and in order to get it out, they had to pry them apart, leaving not one stone upon another. Now, ever since that time, a Jew following what he thinks is Judaism has no place of sacrifice. By the way, recently there's been huge preparations to build that third temple, which is both exciting and grieving. We know it's going to be the house of the Antichrist eventually, but uh, you can go to templeinstitute.org. I've mentioned that to several of you. It's a fascinating thing. Now, keep in mind, this is the project of Jews who have rejected their Messiah. So on one hand, you look at the menorah candle and you say, that's fascinating. But wait a minute. Every article they make is a visible rejection of the Christ that's already come. They don't know Him. But it will be built someday. We don't know when. Now today, prophetically, the Day of Atonement has been partially fulfilled. And we're still awaiting the main fulfillment of that. Keep this in mind. There's two kinds of Bible prophecy. There's that which has been specifically and precisely fulfilled. And there's that which will be specifically and precisely fulfilled. We live in a privileged day and age where we can look back and see many of them that have been fulfilled. But we know they're going to be fulfilled just as precisely in the days to come. I say partial fulfillment because when the Son of God was brutally slaughtered as a substitute for the sins of all mankind, with respect to atonement, the final sacrifice was laid down on that altar, and that was the last blood God would ever need to atone for the sins of humanity. But I also say partial because the final fulfillment awaits the second coming of Christ. It depicts the national repentance of Israel as a nation. You can read about it, Zechariah 12, Zechariah 14. Uh, Romans 9-11 through 11 is a fairly lengthy excursus on God's greater dealings with the Jews in this present church age. And uh, what those three chapters do, by the way, is box us in into an accurate picture of how we're supposed to look at the Jews. If we just take it at face value. But one of the verses there, all Israel shall be saved. It doesn't mean every Jew who's ever lived, many of them have gone to hell and they're not coming out. 
What it means is at the end of the tribulation period, every single Jew left alive when Christ comes. Jehovah says, they will look on me whom they have pierced. Who is pierced on that cross? No creature. God Himself is pierced on that cross. All right, what is it, though, that made the Day of Atonement so significant on the Jewish calendar? I mean, offerings were made every single day. If you could back up and look at the tabernacle later on the temple, every single day you would have seen smoke coming up, except during times of national apostasy. But when they were at least keeping up a form of religious activity, there was constant smoke. Well, one of the reasons is the Day of Atonement typified national and not just personal sinfulness. In other words, the other days of the year, people came to deal with their own sin, but this was a time specifically set apart for the entire nation to think about their own sinfulness corporately before God. Uh, Secondly, it typified sin as an indwelling presence not merely isolated acts. Let me pose this question. What is sin? Well, there's a lot of ways that could be described. The sinfulness of sin isn't even what it is. It's who it's against. Let me pose the question this way. Are you a sinner because you sin? Or do you sin because you are a sinner? The second one is true. You sin because of your corrupted heart. And this feast typified that on a national level. You see to verse 31, it shall be a Sabbath of rest unto you. A Sabbath of rest in this case didn't mean, hey, Mr. Rabinowitz, I think we'll go bass fishing. In this case, the Sabbath of rest, look what it says. A Sabbath of rest to do what? Ye shall afflict your souls. By the way, the future fulfillment of that again. They're going to mourn for him as for an only son. Their souls will be afflicted nationally. But they had this day where he said, take a rest, take time apart. Don't work in the field. Think about your sinfulness. Let it Let it sink in. By the way, you can go overboard on something like this. I've met Christians who, they're so introspective, they never can get a hold on what Christ has made them. I don't mean that. But one thing we're losing, at least in American Christendom, is any sense of taking time to actually think about my sinfulness, and think about how I've offended God, and to think about where my path is actually going. If it's not an app, if it can't be put in a microwave, I just don't have time. We better make time. And uh, notice, the priest was to make an atonement. Look at the list. Verse 33. He was to make an atonement for the holy 
sanctuary itself, the Holy of Holies. He made an atonement for that. He made an atonement for the entire tabernacle later on the temple. He made an atonement for the altar, then the priests, then for the people of the nation. And I think one of the things this did is it kept separate in their minds. For now God's commanded the use of these articles in your approach to God, but don't ever blend in your thinking and think that some golden piece of furniture equals God. God was indescribably holy. But he made these articles to approach him, and even those articles had to be atoned for. Why? Look at verse 16. You shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions and all their sins. So shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. Now those things had been built in obedience to God, yes, but they'd been built by defiled hands and they had to remember that. On that day, the high priest alone had an audience with the God of heaven in the Holy of Holies, the innermost sanctuary of the tabernacle or temple. And think what that would have been like, especially at the beginning. Remember, that was in the midst of their camp, in the wilderness. And all night long, every night, they could see that pillar of fire. And uh, once a year... This man's going to come approach that fire alone. Notice verses 1 and 2. The instructions on this day of atonement begin with a prohibition and not a welcome. Verse 1, The Lord spake unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered before the Lord and died. The Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not. For I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Now the Holy Spirit is careful to give us this conversation that takes place, and it's right on the heels of the death of Aaron's sons. Remember, they were to be priests also. He was the high priest. But just back in chapter 10, right before this, his sons had a brilliant idea. Let's approach God on our terms. And fire went out from the Lord and consumed them. And then Aaron is told when not to come. He's told, don't come on the 364 days of the year when you're not beckoned in here by the Lord Himself. Don't come then. Look at the description. Come into the holy place, the place where God visibly manifested Himself. Uh, come within the veil, the side of the curtain where sinners didn't belong. Come before the mercy seat. That was the lid on top of the ark uh, where mercy was sought and blood was sprinkled which is upon the ark where the broken law was kept and covered. Just a side note, think what else was there. By this time, the pot of golden manna, it was either in the ark or in a compartment next to it. It's hard to tell. Uh, soon after this, Aaron's rod that budded almonds was placed in the same location. And so eventually the high priest would have come in before the law, the pot of manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and 
All of those depict not only Christ, but man's utter inability to approach God on his own. Christ was God's perfect fulfillment of the law. But inside that ark was the law that rebels had broken. Christ said in the New Testament, I am the bread which came down from heaven. The manna depicted him, yet they collected that golden pot of manna right in the midst of rebellion when they're doubting God's provision. Christ was the bread that came down from heaven. But they looked at Christ and said, what, who is this guy? We reject God's provision. We'll save ourselves. Thank you very much. And Aaron's rod that budded, that came about in another period of rebellion where they rejected God's appointed leadership and his appointed high priest. Uh, the rod was a shepherd's staff. And miraculously, it grew branches, leaves, and then almonds overnight, and that was stuck in there. Christ was our great high priest, the good shepherd, the perfect shepherd, the chief shepherd. Man's rebelled against that too. Well, he went in through that veil, which was basically the equivalent of the flaming cherubims from the book of Genesis. And it showed that sin banishes, separates man from the divine presence. By the way, the Jewish uh, temple, uh, tabernacle curtain and the veil had cherubims actually sewn in with the needlework. What's the significance? Well, you see those appear in Genesis. Man's banished from the garden. And what's he kept away from? He's kept away from God by flaming swords of cherubims. And there on that curtain, those were sewn in that were a reminder constantly of anyone who even got that far in, not just to sin, but that man does not approach God ever on his own terms. Passages like this also show, and this is a consistent theme throughout the Bible, although God wants all men to be saved, there is only one way of salvation. The result of disobedience, of course, in this passage and multiple others, in the case of the Jewish priest, was immediate and certain death. God says he's no respecter of persons. Last time Bill Jenkins was here, we were... Uh, have you ever been to that Avon Cafe? Have you been there? Their food's good. Well, we were heading out fly fishing, and we ate at the Avon Cafe, and we went up to pay at the register and the sign behind it caught my attention, a big wooden sign. And it said, we reserve the right to refuse service to anyone. It doesn't matter who you are, who you think you are, or who your daddy is. God's not a respecter of persons. It doesn't matter who you are, who you think you are, or who your daddy is. That's what he was telling Aaron. Notice the reason. Look at verse 2. Why would God strike him dead? Because God was there. He says, For I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. By the way, in a sense, that principle is still true. What would happen if you took a sinner? I'm talking about somebody who sinned one time. Let's say you could take Adam. Right after he disobeyed that simple prohibition, one sin to his account. 
and you could have somehow transported Adam into heaven in that condition, what would have happened? He would have been disintegrated by the sheer holiness of God. Sometimes people today, they make big ado about heaven. But not much about the change of nature that it takes to be ready to meet God. I spoke with a man just yesterday. Tragic conversation, really, but he was assuring me of his own goodness. And he said to me, I just hope in that day my good outweighs my bad and that's a risk I'll have to take. And I guess I'll pay for it forever. And I said, you're right about that. And we went through the law and I tried to explain to him, look, you have to be as righteous as God himself. Do we understand that? He does not grade on the curve. Somebody says, I'm a good person. You can ask them, what's your standard? Do you know it's not the standard? Any creature. On that day, if you choose to try to be saved by your works and reject Christ, your life's dumped out. And it's you compared with God. A soul that sinneth, it shall die. At the Passover, who was it that killed the firstborn? You often hear the death angel. Read the text in Exodus 12. Oh, you paint the door with the blood, but the Lord says, I will pass through the camp. God is the judge. What's the terror of hell, I ask you? It's not that God's not there, it's that God is there. Anybody there is cut off from the attributes of God that could have blessed them. There's no love. There's no mercy. There's no joy. There's no peace. But do you know what is there? The justice of God. A God who's been infinitely offended and thus His wrath has no end and is an offshoot of His perfect holiness which every sinner has offended. That's what's there. You can read about it in Revelation 14.10. They shall be tormented in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And there shall be no rest day nor night. But look, verse 3, the way of the approach is given. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place. Now notice... In this section, God has expressly stated who may come, when He must come, where He must come, and how He must come. Now the same is true of us. We'll get to that. But every way of approach unto God historically or today that's outside the exclusivity of the gospel and the righteousness freely given through Christ amounts to strange fire before the Lord. Think about Nadab and Abihu for a minute, will you? They were from the right tribe. They were from the right family. They had the right clothing. They had the right terminology. They used the correct name for God. Much of professing Christianity is there today. 
The devil will use the name of Christ if he can deceive you. And any strange fire today will meet with the same fate as Nadab and Abihu, which is death by incineration, only that one will be eternal. Now look at Aaron's personal approach on this weighty day in verses 3 and 4. It involved three elements, the proper offering, the proper clothing, and the proper washing. Uh, The offering here was a sin offering and a burnt offering, which we're not going to get into it in depth. Those were given earlier on in the book, but those depict, number one, the propitiation, the satisfaction of God's wrath for our sins. And the burnt offering depicts our total dedication to the service of God as a result of that cleansing. Now notice his clothing, his high priestly garments mentioned here. Uh, By the way, they're not the same garments as Exodus 28. This multicolored, jewel-studded, golden, detailed, fine linen that said, For glory and for beauty, holiness unto the Lord. Those were spectacular garments, I'm sure. But on that day of atonement, when Aaron walked in, he was not dressed like a peacock. He was dressed in simplicity. As I understand it, he would have done the normal morning sacrifices and then put on his regular high priestly garments and exchange, put them off in exchange for simple linen that was pure white. And of course, he had to have the right cleansing, the washing away of defilement that occurs through his normal daily duties. They would have become filthy wearing their sandals, etc. And that's a dual picture for us once again. There's a picture here of our own approach to God today and Christ's approach to God on our behalf. What is our approach of fellowship with God? You have to have the right offering. Friends, sitting in church doesn't any more make you a Christian than sitting in a farm makes you a hog. I'm serious. A lot of religion thinks that way. But he says, boy, i got to clean up my life. I think I'll start going to church. Well, church is good. The right church is. But do you understand? You need a heart cleansing that you can't do. And until that happens, let me ask the question to all of you this morning. What is your offering? If you were asked the question, how do you know your sins are forgiven? How do you know you're made ready to face God? What is your response? If your response is anything other than God Himself was slaughtered for me, and I take His free gift of salvation, I'm a depraved sinner who deserves hell, and He has condescended to save my sorry carcass, if your answer is anything other than that, call it what you will, you're offering strange fire before God. You have the wrong offering. It has to be the proper clothing. What does that mean for us? Why does the New Testament say so much to us as Christians about our standing before God? You remember, religion tells you, do something so God can make you something. Christianity says, God will give you and make you something. Now live according to what you've been made. If you belong to Christ, no matter how new in the faith, 
You are a new creature. Wrath is past. Oh, there's a list of blessings that have been given to you, whether you feel them or not. But how do we put on the proper clothing in a sense? We remember as we come before the Lord that our standing before God, unchangeable, that's been given is one of pure and gleaming white and we're cleansed from defilement. That's what it means to come boldly. I don't come boldly because I've, I've been such a good boy this week. No, I haven't. I can come boldly because Christ shed His blood for me. Obviously, I have my disagreements with John Wesley, but the man did love God. It was said of one who prayed with Wesley that when he started, he was so humble and pathetic that you felt sorry for him. And by the time he was done, he was so bold that you were scared for him. And then there has to be the proper cleansing, our ongoing confession of sin from our daily defilement. Now, what about Christ's approach? I mentioned this also typifies Him. What were Christ's garments? He laid aside the manifestation of His divine glory. He laid aside the exercise of many of His attributes to become a humble, spotless lamb. And His life on this earth was not ostentatious in a jewel-bedecked spectacle of a wealthy monarch but a simple and irresistible holiness clothed as a humble carpenter from a despised town called Nazareth. Now outside the veil, before ever entering the holy place, having washed and donned his simpler pure white linen garments, imagine, <laughs> I know my wife will tell you when something big is going on sometimes, I, I kick and thrash sometimes, I don't sleep super well. I imagine a serious-minded high priest didn't sleep so well the night before. He's thinking about what this meant. In verse 5, he was to take out of the congregation of the children of Israel two goats, one ram, also a sin and a burnt offering, just as Christ was taken out from among the congregation of the children of Israel as literal descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then notice verse 6 and verse 11 he was to offer an offering for himself and his household first. So when he finally entered the Holy of Holies, he went to sprinkle blood for himself and his own house first. Why? Well, Aaron was kept from thinking that he was in any position in and of himself to help anybody. I mean, just think of one glaring application of that. What's the biggest help you can be to anybody? To be close to God yourself. That's the biggest help you can be. Now, there's offshoots of that, I know, but if you are not close to God, you can't be much spiritual help. The lots were cast on these two goats by the hands of men, but determined ultimately by God Himself. It kind of reminds me of Acts 2.23. Peter's preaching at Pentecost, and he says to the Jews who had slaughtered their Messiah, he said, Him, talking of Christ, uh, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. In other words, God planned and knew this was going to happen. And then He said, Ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. And there you have sovereignty and free will in one verse. 
Explain the mystery, I cannot, but you see it. So on one hand, Peter's saying, oh, don't worry. You didn't thwart the plan of God, you fulfilled it. Oh, so we're not in trouble. You have by wicked hands killed the Messiah, and you will be held accountable. All right, so what about these two goats? Goat number one, it says, was for the Lord. He was offered for a sin offering, just like Christ was offered as a sin offering for the Lord. I would encourage you, be familiar with Bible terms like propitiation. It's a big word, but it has a big meaning. It's a precious word. It means a satisfaction of wrath. When we say Christ was the propitiation for my sins, it means that I deserved eternal punishment. But Christ took all of it in my place. And the wrath of God towards me was satisfied. Goat number two, the scapegoat. Some have erroneously said this is Satan. It is absolutely not a picture of Satan. But the second goat was presented alive before the Lord, just like Christ was presented alive after his resurrection. How did that happen? Verse 21 to 22. Aaron lay his hands on the head of the live goat to confess over him all the iniquities and the children of Israel, and then he sent it out into the wilderness. So, what does it have to do with Christ? Well, He was determined by the Father to be sent into this wilderness of a sin-cursed world, taking its symbol upon its brow. Thorns came because of sin, Genesis 3. Christ wore that on His head as He bore our penalty. It also depicts the rejection and the loneliness, the man of sorrows acquainted with grief, rejected by His people. And by that rejection, what happened? The first goat for the Lord that we talked about depicts what Christ accomplished with respect to the Father. He was a propitiation for sin. That second goat, the scapegoat, depicts what He accomplished for us. If you're a believer, where are your sins this morning? Where was the goat sent? Into the wilderness, into a land not inhabited. Hmm. Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. They're gone. Now, the entrance into the veil beyond this thick curtain, the sacrifices would have been slain outside, both of them, and uh, placed on the altar, and then he would take a bull from the altar and he would fill it with the blood of the sacrifice, now, now picture Aaron for a minute here. On one hand, in one hand, he had a small censer, a little bowl, a little vessel, filled with live coals, filled with fire. And in the other hand, he had a bowl with blood from that altar outside. Now remember, when Aaron took that censer in, what would he have been thinking of? Nadab and Abihu. The censer they brought and the fire that came out and devoured them. So on one hand, Aaron enters with this vivid picture of terror in the presence of the holy God of heaven. 
And by the way, verse 13, the, one of the purposes of that cloud of incense was so that the visible manifestation of God was shielded so that Aaron once again wouldn't be struck dead. The idea of that incense was it clouded God's presence. Again, as a picture, no man in his sin can look on me and live. I don't know how much stock to put in it, but some of you have probably run across the old Jewish legend, at least, that some high priest would enter with a rope tied around their ankle and the rest dragging outside the veil in case people outside heard a weird groan and thud. They could at least... Get the body out. Don't know if that's true or not, but I'm sure that some wondered if that was necessary, if nothing else. So on one hand, Aaron enters with this picture of acceptance of the blood of the, of the animal, and on the other hand, he enters with this picture of terror and the wrath and the holiness of God, and he enters like that. The blood of sacrifice there was sprinkled on the mercy seat, the top, the lid of that ark. It says in verse 14, it was eastward. That's even interesting. Why? Man's banished from the garden. Back in Genesis again, those cherubims are placed where? On the eastward side. Man was expelled to the east. The book of Ezekiel, the glory clouds departing from the Jews. He's heading to the east. Matthew 24, when the Son of Man comes back, it's going to be like lightning from the east. So the picture is man's banishment from paradise, the departing of the glory of God. They were undone at Calvary for the believer. And it was seven times the picture of perfection. What about that sensor of fire? You know, that same fire that had just consumed the sacrifice outside and he was now carrying in. Justice had run its course and was satisfied. Now that same sensor of fire became the very means of filling the holy place with a sweet-smelling incense. The same righteousness that demanded the death sentence of a sacrifice guarantees that God can be pleased with the feeble incense of our obedience to Him. If you're outside of Christ, it's a guarantee you're going to face God's wrath. But if you are in Christ, it's a guarantee that you cannot. And there's no middle ground. It kind of reminds me of Isaiah 6. Here comes the angel to the prophet and he says, Woe is me, I'm undone. You remember that? I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And the angel takes this live coal and says, Lo, thy, thy iniquity is purged. And then he sent out to serve. That's the proper order. We serve him because of what he's done. Now look at verse 17. And there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goeth in to make an atonement in the holy place. Nobody else could go in Only one man, the high priest of the nation, could enter, and all others had to be put out. (laughs) Hebrews 1.3 says of Christ, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His perfection, saying He was God in the flesh, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, 
sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. His walk was a lonely one. Not only because men rejected his holy life because it exposed their inner blackness of hearts, but because none other was intrinsically worthy. Think what that must have meant to John. Remember, he's caught up to heaven in Revelation 5. There's this scroll that appears with the seven seals on it. And the question is asked in heaven, who is worthy to open this? And it's like a a census of heaven is taken. And not even the angels will step up. John says, I wept much because none was found worthy. And then here comes one of the elders and says, weep not for the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's worthy. He's still worthy. Friends, no one is worthy to save you except him. But weep not. There's one who is worthy. And John turns to look. You know, there's a famous painting. I don't remember who painted it of that scene. And the lamb that it shows is this the tiniest little lamb. You know, the Greek word there is the most diminutive form of that word lamb. The elder says, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And when he turns, what does he see? He sees the tiniest little lamb. The lion became the lamb to be slaughtered, and he's worthy. (laughs) You and I, we can say, weep not. Christ wept and prayed alone in the garden while men slept. Christ was arrested and tried alone while his disciples forsook him and fled. Christ alone was a fulfillment of God's law while lawbreakers in unison condemned him to die. Christ suffered alone under the weight of God's eternal wrath while men passed by, wagged their heads, and mocked. Christ entered the veil alone and by himself purged our sins. Now you can fast forward. This went on in Jewish history for centuries. I'm told the veil in Herod's temple was magnificent. Estimates vary, but I've read that it was as tall as 90 feet, several inches thick. Now, if you could look at that, that's about as tall as the biggest buildings in Helena. If you could look at that and see the cherubim sewn in, and you see this nine-story curtain, and everything about it screams, sinners dare not enter here. Jesus is slaughtered. What happens to that veil? You see... This is why the inspiration of Scripture is so important. It doesn't just say the veil was torn. You see, the veil wasn't torn bottom to top. 
Like a man grabbed it and said, I'll approach God. No, the veil was torn top to bottom. Not only was the way open for whosoever will, but God Himself opened the way. What about today? That veil is burned to ashes. The temple was destroyed. But the truth remains, there's free access to all who will come. The Day of Atonement's been partially fulfilled. We look for a future restoration of the nation Israel when it will be completely fulfilled. But think of yourself personally for a minute. What about your day of atonement? When was it or is there one? Friends, just like you can make the finest meal for a starving man, if he doesn't eat it, he'll starve. God's offering for you does nothing if you won't take it. There's no more temple today. Do you know why? I'll give you three words. It is finished. What's finished? All the blood God would need to atone for sins. Do you know why? Because it wasn't just a man that died on that cross. It was an infinite, the infinite God. And He suffered infinite wrath. Nobody has to face it anymore. But you have to take it for yourself. Are your sins gone? Or are you left alone in the dark? So many say, I hope it goes well with me. Oh, I hope I've done enough good things. Oh, I I hope my sins are forgiven. God doesn't intend. You know what that is? That's hopelessness. There's no foundation in that. You see, the world talks about faith a great deal, but faith without an object is useless. You can have all the faith in the world towards Tinkerbell and she won't help you. The issue with faith is where or who is placed in. Remember for Aaron, I mentioned he was given specifically who may come, when to come, where to come, and how to come. What about today? Are we given who may come? We are. Whosoever will may come. Let me give you a very technical definition for the word whosoever. You know, you know what it means? It means whosoever. It means there's not a set of eyeballs in this room that God's open door of salvation isn't thrown open to. But do you understand, He won't grab you by the neck and britches and throw you in. You have a choice. So who may come? Whosoever will. How about when to come? Aaron got to come once a year and that was it. What about you and I? Are we told when? Sure we are. 2 Corinthians 6.2 Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The Bible simplifies your calendar a little bit down to two guaranteed days that you have, and that's it. Do you know what two days you have? You have right now 
in the day you appear before God. That's all you're assured of. You never see the gospel presented as come to Jesus when you have time, come to Jesus when you feel like it, come to Jesus in the fall, come to him after hunting season is over, come to Jesus when, 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 when what? When what? Now, that's when. What about where to come? Do I go to Jerusalem? Do I go uh, do this at the wailing wall with a little ponytail? Disciples asked Jesus, we, what do you mean, where, where, where do we go? What, remember what the Lord said, John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. We're also told how to come. Aaron put on garments of simplicity to go in. How are you and I to come? Here's how with nothing. Are you a good person here this morning? Well, let me warn you, God won't save good people. Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He didn't mean there was anything in existence that could be called a righteous person of their own accord. But what he was saying was, until you and I recognize our need, the grace of God means nothing. Friends, listen, Jesus is either 100% your Savior or 100% your judge in the future, and you can choose. That's it. Really, you can either take the censer of fire or you can take the blood of the Lamb. But you'll take one of them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these feast days that, Lord, they were given to the Jews as a nation. We recognize that, but what tremendous pictures of our Lord Jesus they give. Father, you know the state of souls in this room. And you know I can't save anybody, neither can anybody else. If there's somebody sitting here who's outside of Christ, whether others know it or not, it doesn't matter, you know it. I pray that you'd systematically tear down their own self-righteousness. I pray you'd manifest to them how utterly evil they are. I pray that you'd show them their own inability to save themselves. I pray, God, you'd give them a great understanding of your holiness and a terror of your judgment so that for their own good, they may be prepared to come with nothing. Thank you for extending your mercy to whosoever will. In Jesus' name, amen.